Guinea, 12,500 miles away, uh, to celebrate 50 years of language development and Bible translation uh, by the mission we used to work with, the Summer Institute of Linguistics, Wycliffe Bible Translators. It's also an opportunity to visit two of our mission personnel. Uh, Teresa Wilson and Beata Wozner from Poland uh, work with the Samat people who live on the remote Ninigo Islands, way out in the ocean. You can see a red arrow on the map where they're located. And to get to their location, you have to travel by a small plane for several hours over jungle terrain, about three or four hours, and then we flew for a hundred miles over open ocean. The only thing we saw the whole journey was a container ship, which is a kind of little dot in the ocean on the, map, on the picture there. Uh, we were a bit apprehensive about this. Because uh, as we got to the ocean bit, I said to the pilot, uh, what's the airstrip like? And he said, that young American guy called Chris, he said, gee, he said, I don't know, I've never been before. He said, but I've always wanted to fly to this airstrip. Uh, so, I was a bit concerned by this. I said, how are you going to get this? He said, no problem, I've got a map. So he got a map on his knee and some instrumentation and we flew for a hundred miles, and then eventually, down below, was this little island. And he kind of circled it once, and put us down on the grass airstrip, with hardly a bump. It's over the back of the picture there, if you're looking at the screen. However, our problems are not over, because <clears throat> then we had to travel by boat to the various islands where Teresa and Beata are working. And just a few weeks before, this is a perfectly true story, many of you will know you prayed about it, they were crossing a two-hour trip, and the outboard motor broke, the guy fixing it dropped the spanner in the sea, they drifted for five hours with a ten-foot shark circling the boat, and in God's providence, bumped into the end of an island before they were swept out into the open ocean. So, I was rather apprehensive about this, I'm absolutely honest here with you, friends, as we got in this boat... But I need not have worried, because Chris the pilot was with us. And I discovered he was not only a pilot, but he also was an expert at sailing as well. He told me he'd worked for years in the far north of Canada on his uncle's salmon fishing business out in the ocean or something. So as we got on this boat going across, I said, you remember that story, Chris, about the girls drifting away? Gee, yeah, I, was, yeah, I said, I said... Have you had any thoughts about what might happen if the outboard motor breaks down again? And he said, yes, there's no problem. You see, it's just that, see that pole there? I'd use that as a mast and that tarpaulin and use as a sail and he'd use that as a rudder. It's no problem at all. And as we landed eventually on the island, he said about repairing generators and people started bringing them. I realized he could probably have fixed the outboard motor anyway. The next day, the people on the island said to us, how would you like to go out with us on one of our <coughs> local boats? I think we jumped ahead a bit here. Uh, and uh, when we were on the boat, Andrew, can you go back to the previous picture? Uh, yeah, this is one of their local boats, quite unique to people. And as we got out on this boat in the ocean, a huge squall broke up. You'll see at the end there, there's Chris steering the boat. And he steered us back to shore. Incidentally, he was a brilliant guitarist, and um, he was also fluent. Everywhere he went, he shared his testimony in fluent pidgin with the local people. You see, the more time we spent with Chris, 
The more impressed we were with him and the more safe and secure we felt. It would not surprise me at all if he could have done an emergency appendix operation if necessary. (laughs) Now, last week, in our study in Luke's Gospel, which we entitled, Good News of Great Joy for All People, we saw that the twelve disciples Jesus had chosen were taken by him on a mission trip on a boat across the lake or sea of Galilee It was a learning experience in which they learned that with Jesus they could face danger, a threatening storm at sea, and even demons as a wild man encountered on the other side of the sea. They met with, in both situations, Jesus was master. But the lesson is not over. As they crossed back by boat to the other side, to their base near the town of Capernaum, on the other side of the lake, there are some more lessons they're going to learn, learning with Jesus. And that's what we want to try and learn this evening. There are two fresh challenges after danger. They all begin with D, so you remember them. After danger and demons, uh, this evening we look at them facing disease and death. So let's turn to our passage. That was a kind of introduction. But let's turn to our passage in Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56. We're going to read. Page 1038. If you don't have a Bible, just reach over and get one. The Bible's in the pews. It will help to follow where we're going. Thank you. Luke 8, verse 14. Now, when Jesus returned, that's Jesus and the disciples in their boat, as soon as they pulled in, there was a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him, to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, The people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, someone touch me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter's dead. He said, don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John and James and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned. And at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished. But he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. This is the word of the gospel. Let's just pray for a moment and ask God to help us to understand it. Heavenly Father, we focused on your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is able to save has shared his own testimony. Many of us here, maybe the circumstances may be less dramatic, can also testify to that same fact. 
But all of us need to learn that Jesus is Lord in far more situations than we're aware. And so whatever situation we may face this evening, even those of us who have never experienced his power in our lives, we pray that by your spirit and word, you might speak to us and help us to know what it means to trust in Jesus, who is both Saviour and Lord. And we ask it in his name. Amen. I don't know if you noticed there's an interesting connection in this story. For 12 years, an only daughter had brought joy to her father. While for those same 12 years, a terrible illness had brought misery to a woman. Now, on the same day, their lives are to be linked together. For the daughter is at death's door. The woman is at desperation point, and the connection is Jesus, who is their only hope. So what do they and we, along with the disciples, learn about Jesus from these two stories, which Matthew and Mark also interlink in this way, these two related stories. Let me just share three very simple things. First of all, we learn in this story the compassion that Jesus shows. The compassion that Jesus shows. Jesus shows compassion to two needy, but very different people. The first is an important man with a sick daughter. No sooner has the boat run ashore, on their return from the far side of the lake, than Jesus and his disciples are met by an expectant crowd. Whether the news had got around about the exorcism of the demon-possessed man on the other side of the lake, we don't know. But Jesus was on the talk, was the talk of the town, the talk of the nation. And huge crowds flocked everywhere to see him, to hear him. And they're expectant, Luke tells us. But as they set out on the journey along the lake shore, presumably into the town of Capernaum, suddenly the crowd parts and a man comes through the crowd and he rushes forward and he falls on his knees in front of Jesus. Not in worship, but in supplication. He begs for help. Verse 41, then a man named Jairus a ruler of the synagogue came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. The synagogue, that was a kind of building that Jews met in to meet with one another and to meet with God and to hear the law of God and to read from the sacred Hebrew Scriptures. It was the focus of community and religious life. And synagogues were run by a board of men. They were called synagogue rulers. They were responsible for organising everything, and particularly the order of service in the synagogue. It was a position of great prestige. Such a man, we learn, is this man Jairus, who's fallen at the feet of Jesus. He's a synagogue ruler. It's pretty doubtful whether many such people frequented the crowds that thronged around Jesus as he taught in Israel. And the increasing animosity towards Jesus from the religious establishment, as we've seen already in Luke, ensured that anyone who valued his position in society probably stayed well clear of this self-styled teacher from the uncouth north of Israel, from Galilee. Thus it's possible, probable, that Jairus up to this point has maybe fallen into this category until one particular day when tragedy strikes him and his family. His 12-year-old daughter, Luke tells us his only daughter, 
fell ill, despite, presumably, in spite of all the attention of the best doctors that only a rich man like Jairus could afford, her condition worsened until it became clear to every one of them that there was no hope for her. She was dying and death was not far away. And it is at this point, when all help, all hope is gone, that Jairus seeks out Jesus, this man whose name is on the lips of all the people, who, reputation has it, can heal the sick. He falls on his knees before Jesus and makes his impassioned plea. It is not a very dignified approach for a man of his status, but when your only daughter is at death's door, it is no time to stand on your dignity. Now let me pause and say there are many people in our world who are like Jairus. Perhaps some even here in this church this evening. Or listening later online or by tape. Good living people, upstanding members of the community, maybe even churchgoers, but not too enthusiastic, you understand. Oh, that kind of thing is alright for simple souls, people who need a prop in life. But not very appropriate, not very dignified for a pillar of society. What would your friends think if you got involved with that kind of enthusiasm? And all seems well and good until tragedy strikes. The unexpected redundancy. The sudden betrayal by a marriage partner. The unforeseen accident or illness, especially that of someone you love. Money, power, influence can buy a lot of things. But not all things. And nothing can protect you against death. Whoever you are. Now, most of us push these things to the back of our minds and we just hope they don't happen to us. But sometimes a desperate situation drives a person like Jairus to Jesus. And I simply want to say this evening, I don't know, I know quite a few of you, even the ones we know, sometimes we don't know what's behind the facade, our circumstances. I simply want to say that maybe God is pushing you towards him because you're facing a huge crisis in your life at this pleasant time. Or someone you love is. And I simply want to say to you this evening, it may seem a strange thing to say, just be thankful because God uses tragedy to drive people to himself in a way that nothing else will. And here's something to be even more thankful for. When that is the case, Jesus does not say to Jairus and to us, where have you been until now? You're only interested in me now. You're in need. Clear off or biblically depart from me. And I simply want to say to you, such is the love of Jesus for those who seek him. He doesn't turn us away or turn away from us. He's revealed in the Gospels as one who is a man, it's a lovely word, he's a man full of compassion. Greek word for compassion. We, we love people with our hearts. In the Greek world, they love people with their bowels. And it's the word that's used. It's an expressive word of emotion. Jesus is moved by broken lives, broken homes, broken marriages, broken bodies. Out of such brokenness, he can bring wholeness and healing if in our desperation we seek him and like Jairus, simply set aside our dignity and plead for help. So, Jesus sets off with Jairus to his home. Uh, Luke tells us the crowd literally are pressing in. Have you ever been in a crowd that's pressing in? I was once, I'll tell you this, but once when I was at Bible College, um, I shouldn't have done this really, but I did, I was at Hampden Park with 140,000 people at the Celtic Rangers final. And that's pressing in. Particularly when Celtic scored number four and we all surged forward and you just got squashed. 
Well, that's the crowd here. You, you haven't, sometimes you move ten feet. You never stand in front of a barrier at a football match like that. You stand the other side. If you're coming to watch tomorrow evening the big match, though, don't stand the other side of the barrier. So you're all right. <laughs> they were crushed in. But in the crowd, pushing forward, is another desperate person who needs help from Jesus. Someone at the opposite end of the social scale and religious scale. Someone we will learn is a despised woman with a serious illness. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. We're not told the name of this woman. We're simply told that she'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years. We can't be sure of the details of her condition, some kind of persistent uterine bleeding. And while Mark in his gospel mentions that she spent a fortune on doctors, Dr. Luke, who wrote this gospel, is more polite to his own profession. He simply says, no one could heal her. As in the case of Jairus and his daughter, Jesus is the last resort. However, you can miss the worst part of the story of this woman, and the worst part of the story was not just her illness, but what it meant. Because of her illness, she was alienated from society, and alienated from worship. Her condition made her an outcast in society because the law of Moses, Leviticus 15, said that a woman like this was not to have contact with other people. She was religiously unclean. Now, for most women, this was limited to a few days after menstruation. But in the case of this woman, this period, literally, had extended for 12 years. So she shouldn't have even been out of doors, let alone contaminating a whole crowd of people. And this, of course, is why she remains anonymous and doesn't approach Jesus directly, as Jairus did. She creeps up behind him. Now, while there are many people in our world like Jairus, there are also many people like this woman. It's not a sudden crisis, but a gradual and worsening condition that points us in the direction of Jesus. And again, perhaps you're such a person. A person with a problem that simply seems to get worse and worse. At the beginning you think, it'll pass. I'll get through this phase. Maybe it's something you're deeply embarrassed about. Even ashamed about. You spent all you have, energies, resources, to no avail. It's not been resolved. And like this woman, maybe it alienates you from other people. There is good reason to believe that she was alienated even from her own husband because of her condition. And maybe you're that kind of person. You feel alienated from society and alienated from God. All your plans and dreams, what you hoped for when you were younger, have been frustrated. But there's just a glimmer of hope left this evening. Perhaps Jesus can help can sort out your problem. And so it is with this woman. She creeps up behind Jesus and touches the edge of his cloak. Probably, this is a reference to the prayer cloak that Jewish men wore, which had tassels on the four corners of the cloak, hanging down, slung it over the shoulder, hanging down behind his back. That, again, is in the law of Moses, in Numbers 15, Deuteronomy 22, if you're interested. Now, the question is, what would the outcome be? Would Jesus reject her? And what we learn, as we move on, is that the compassion of Jesus is not limited to an important man like Jairus, but also to a despised woman like her. So much so that Jesus halts in his urgent journey to the home of Jairus to speak words of love and reassurance to her. 
The passion that Jesus shows. Now, let's move on from that. Learn a second thing about this story. Secondly, the faith that Jesus rewards. And once again, as you look at the two people in the story, we see the characteristics of faith in Jesus are very different. Let me give you two headings that may help you to remember. Uh, The woman has a faith that is tenuous, timid. Her faith almost borders on superstition as she reaches out and touches this tassel. But it's enough. Luke reports immediately her bleeding stop, verse 44. And as soon as this happens... Jesus realizes what has happened to him. And he says, who touched me? Now, obviously the crowd and the disciples think this is a bit of a daft question when when you've been hemmed in by a huge crowd of people. Who touched me? And Peter, the usual outspoken one, says, Master, this crowd of people, loads of people have touched you. But Jesus knows there is one individual among them who has exercised faith in him. And it is necessary that she is identified. It is of vital importance for this woman that she identifies herself, not so that, as she probably fears, Jesus might condemn her for doing such a thing, but rather that he might reward her by giving understanding to her limited faith. She needs to understand it was Jesus himself and not his clothes that had power to heal. So she comes forward and trembling, falls at Jesus' feet and tells all. Now again, this is a very brave move. In the culture of the day, women kept quiet, They didn't speak in public. And certainly a woman like this would certainly not let on to her condition. Everybody would go, oh. But her faith, tenuous though it is, is strengthened and rewarded. Notice what Jesus says to her daughter. He says, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Notice how Jesus addresses this woman. I think it's the only case in the Gospels where Jesus addresses a woman by the term daughter term of endearment. Maybe he's nudging Jairus here and saying, I know you've got a daughter who's in need, but this is a daughter who's in need as well. Loved by him, Jesus, as you love your daughter. Now, what an encouragement to every person. And Mesra's sharing his own testament again. I keep saying read the book. But, you know, to someone who's had a difficult family background, no father, mother, or if you have a father or mother who doesn't care for you, to such needy people who come in faith, Jesus says, daughter, son, go in peace. The word peace, reflection of the Hebrew word shalom, covers not just physical health, but spiritual well-being. Peace with God, peace with others. Now, today, of course, we can't literally touch the garments of Jesus as the woman did. Nor do we need to. That's the whole fallacy of relics and things like that. But it's not necessary for faith needs to be exercised in Jesus and in his power to heal and to save. It's the word of Jesus, the word of the good news of Jesus, that alone can restore us and bring us into peace with God, that peace for which we are made. And I simply ask you, this evening, you, maybe your faith is very limited. Maybe you don't understand very much. I, I'm talking much greater length with Mez. It made me realize again, people coming in from the outside these days in our post-Christian society, even people who have an educated background, often haven't a clue what we're talking about. When we talk about Jesus and the gospel and the good news of Jesus, we use words necessary. I'm not saying we should stop doing it. I'm simply saying, you don't need to know any, everything. You simply need, in your need, You need in your need to exercise simple faith in Jesus. Enlightenment will follow. Your faith won't remain there as this woman's didn't. But you need simply to reach out and seek Jesus, whatever your need may be.
Now back to the story. I, I, like, I love this story. I can imagine while this is going on, Jairus is hopping on one foot and another. If he'd had his watch, he's probably going, as some of you are, thinking, what time is this going to happen? Um, probably be looking at his watch. Surely, at this point in the story where Jesus had realised power had gone out from him, he could simply have continued on his way, uninterrupted, allowing the woman to slip away into the crowd, and none but the woman and Jesus would have known what had happened, and if she needed further enlightenment, Jesus could have sought her out later. There are at least two examples in the Gospels of a paralysed man and a blind man whom Jesus later on met with and explained more fully about their faith. Surely Jairus and his requests should get priority treatment for Jesus. Not only is he first in the queue, but his need is more urgent and important as well. His daughter is at death's door. She needs urgent treatment. Well, for this woman, let's face it, she's been sick for 12 years. What's an hour or two more is going to make any difference? And why does she need a theological education at this point? Should not Jesus, therefore, as it were, have put the woman in the waiting room and returned until his return from the home of Jairus. That is what we should expect. That is what everyone in the crowd expected, not least Jairus. And surely they are right, because as Jesus is talking, up runs a messenger from the house of Jairus and says, don't bother, your daughter's dead, don't bother the teacher anymore. Verse 49. But though Jairus doesn't realise it, all is not lost. The seeming delay on the part of Jesus is no accident it will provide an increased opportunity for faith in Jesus and glory to him in what follows. So while Jesus rewards the faith of the woman which is tenuous, he also promises to reward the faith of Jairus, a faith that secondly is tested. For on hearing the news, he turns to Jairus and says, don't be afraid, just believe and she will be healed. Despite appearances, despite the seemingly hopelessness of the situation, Jairus is urged to keep on believing in Jesus. As they make their way to the house, God uses seeming delays and even seeming inactivity on his part in our lives in order to strengthen our faith and bring greater glory to him. The classic example of this, we don't have time to look at it when you go home, read the story of the raising of Lazarus, an even more remarkable miracle, where Jesus waits till he's been dead for four days before he finally goes and does anything about it. And no wonder the sisters, when they meet him, say, both of them say, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Where were you? Jesus said, this is for the glory of God. So we turn to the third and final thing that we learn about Jesus and the disciples learn. The compassion he shows, the faith he rewards, and thirdly, finally, the power he possesses. The disciples have already learned that Jesus has authority over natural forces as the wind and waves obey his command and spiritual forces as the demons submit as he drives them out of the man. They've just learned that Jesus has authority over disease in the case of this woman as she is instantly healed of a 12 year old illness but now they are about to learn something even more astounding not the healing of a sick woman but the raising of a dead girl Jesus has authority over death in the case of a girl when they finally arrive at the home of Jairus they discover that the news of the death in the house has already spread funeral preparations are already underway in necessity in a hot climate 
The official mourners were already there, weeping and wailing. Matthew tells us playing flutes. You had flute players for the occasion. And surely also the family of the dead girl are present and mourning, all too real and genuine sorrow. And such scenes are commonplace throughout the world. For no human society is immune from death and the grief that accompanies it. Death is a terrible thing. And as we've been reminded in the news recently, as we continue to pray for families connected to this church, the death of a child is especially so. See, in the face of death, we see our own mortality. We're forced to face up to our own impotence with all our modern technology and medicine for which we should be grateful. We can only prolong life. We cannot avoid death. It is so final. So we say, while there's life, there's hope. And by inference, where there's death, there's no hope. All we can do is grieve. But Jesus gives hope to all who mourn. For Jesus, in Jesus, where there's death, there's hope. So he addresses the mourners. He says, stop wailing. She's not dead, but asleep. Some have read into the word sleep that Jesus is saying, actually, she's only in a coma. She's not really dead. It is absolutely clear from the story this girl is clinically dead. In fact, the same word Jesus uses of Lazarus. When he's been dead four, year, four days, he said, our brother Lazarus has fallen asleep. And the disciples said, well, go and wake him. And he said, no, he's dead. Why does he use the word sleep? Well, by sleep he is saying, this death is not final. It is possible to be awakened from this condition. Jairus is to keep on believing in the face of death, in the face of ridicule. And the mourners laugh literally in the face of Jesus. But laughter will soon turn to amazement. As Jesus enters the room where the girl is, along with the three privileged disciples, Peter, John and James. Notice what Jesus does. He takes the dead girl by the hand. Again, a ritually unclean act, forbidden by the law of Moses, made you ceremonial and clean to touch dead bodies. Then he addresses her personally. Mark gives the literal Aramaic, Talitha Kum. Little girl, get up. And immediately she stands up and walks around. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned. Then at once she stood up. The spirit is reunited with the body. Scriptures teach that when you die, your spirit, the real you, departs from the body. Here the spirit returns. And in order to show she's not some kind of disembodied ghost or spirit, and to give her practically something to eat, Jesus tells them, Give her some food. No wonder her parents were astonished. This man has authority not only over disease, but even over death. Jesus possesses the power to raise the dead. Now we're drawing nearly to the end. But let's make sure we don't miss the point here. Notice in conclusion how Luke ends the story. Parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Why not? Why does Jesus not say to them, as he said to the healed demoniac, return home and tell your friends what great things the Lord has done for you? Think what effect the testimony of parents who could testify that Jesus can raise dead children would have. And that is the point. Think what effect it would have. Why, every grieving parent, every grieving person, would call upon Jesus to raise their dead. Thousands upon thousands. The undertakers would be put out of business. He would be swamped. 
And the point of Luke's account here, notice it carefully because you can miss the point completely. The point is, this is not the priority of Jesus. His priority at this point is not to raise the dead, but to die. In fact, we're going to come to it, God willing, when we resume this series after the summer break. This is the last in the series for the moment. In the very next chapter, Jesus begins to teach the disciples. The miracles begin to dwindle away as Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem. And he tells them, Luke 9, verse 22, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day rise to life. The priority of Jesus is not just to die, but to die and then to rise from the dead. You see, the work Jesus came to do was to die. In our place, paying the penalty we deserve, the wages of sin, which is death. So that we might receive the gift of eternal life, so that we might live. And God declared that that price has been paid by raising Jesus from the dead. The Apostle Paul writes in Corinthians, he says, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. You see, the priority of Jesus was to die to rise from the dead so that we might live. So that even if we die and when we die, we will live forever. We will be raised to life. So what does Jesus say to the grieving sister who says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. He said, I am the resurrection of the life. These are words I read at every Christian funeral. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And then he turns to her and he says, do you believe this? And as we draw to a conclusion, I simply say, do you believe this? Do you believe him? Have you exercised faith in him? Jesus shows his compassion to you, whoever you are. Whatever your situation. But he rewards the faith of those who trust in him. No matter how tenuous or tested that faith may be. Listen, in the recorded earthly ministry of Jesus, in the Gospels, we have the record of only three people that he raised from the dead. A daughter, Jairus. A son of a widow woman, Nain, we read that previously in Luke. And a brother of Mary and Martha. Why? Because they're a foretaste. A sign of proof of what Jesus one day will do when daughters and sons and brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers are raised again to life eternal. And I simply say, do you believe this? There is nothing greater than a Christian funeral where you read those words and people say, that person lived by this, died by this, will rise again by this. There is nothing worse than a funeral service where people die without hope and without God in the world. It is dreadful. And I simply say to you, whoever you are, do you believe this? You see, Jesus has the ultimate authority. Let me conclude with his words. John 5. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He's crossed over from death to life. Change of status. I tell you the truth, says Jesus. A time is coming and now has come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming 
when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. And that will be the end of the story. History. Final judgment. And unless you trust in Christ now, you have no hope then. Only judgment. This is the only hope in which to live and die and to rise again to eternal life. And I say to you, as I've said many, many times in this church over the last 15 years, put your trust in Him. He is the resurrection and the life. Let's pray together.